This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. RNA interference offers the potential to disrupt the translation of instructions from genes with mutations into proteins that drive diseases. Silence Therapeutics is developing a pipeline of therapies based on its mRNAi Gold platform that allows it to target short interfering RNAs to liver cells. We spoke to Mark Rothera, then CEO of Silence Therapeutics, and Giles Campion, Silence's chief medical officer and head of R&D, about the company's platform technology why it can be used to target a broad range of genetic diseases, and the company's programs and development. Since recording this podcast, Rothera stepped down as CEO, and the company named Craig Tuman, who had served as CFO of the company since January 2021, as its new president and CEO. Mark, Giles, thanks for joining us. Danny, thanks for the invitation. We're going to talk about Silence Therapeutics, its CERNA platform technology, and its potential to treat a range of genetic diseases. Let's start with CERNAs, or short interfering RNAs themselves. What are these, and how do they work? Well, let me just start by painting a picture of the company Silence. I mean, we've been around for 20 years, and we focused on... RNA interference, so the ability to knock down or silence the expression of disease-causing proteins in the liver. And we do that with these short interfering RNA molecules. Um, they're designed specifically to target the gene in question at the mRNA level in liver cells. So it's something that we've developed enormous know-how around over many, many years now. And, and we can target this at you know, genetic disease, whether it's rare or even non-rare. What makes them compelling as a therapeutic approach? So I'll start, and maybe you know, Giles will want to add some comment here, but I do think this is a, a remarkable technology because I've worked in many different types of genetic medicine, but what we have here is the ability with a, you know, just a few subcutaneous injections a year uh, to be able to control a genetic condition um, by achieving substantial reduction in the production of these disease-causing proteins in the liver. So it's very precise in, in a, you know, addressing those specific um, 
genes in question that we want to stop being expressed at the mRNA level, uh, but very easy to take. So you're just talking, you know, two to four injections a year, typically. And I think what's interesting about the technology is that it harnesses um, a natural process in the body, originally designed to try and control infections. And so we're able to take use of that and use it to reduce, as uh, Mark said, the production of disease-related proteins. The important thing about it as a genetic therapy, um, the advantage is that it's, it, it has a specificity of genetic therapy, but unlike gene therapy, it is reversible. So we're not trying to introduce new DNA into the, uh, into the body. What we're trying to do is to disrupt the message going from a disease-related gene to causing uh, to to producing the protein, so it has that um, the advantage of both specificity and reversibility. There has long been excitement over the therapeutic potential of CERNAS, but th it's been difficult to fully realize the potential because of delivery challenges, their instability, and, and, and the duration of their effect. Silence has what it calls its mRNAi Gold Platform. What are you able to do with this platform and, and how does it address these challenges? You're right. I mean, when when this technology was initially developed, you sort of have identified some of the, 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 the problems. Um, one is stabilization, uh, making sure that the, the molecules hang around in the body long enough to do what they're meant to do. And the other is delivery. Um, what has been, um, I think, a breakthrough has been the ability to conjugate these molecules to a delivery moiety called Galnac. And that gives specific delivery to the liver um, where there are a whole range of disease-related genes that we can target. And, and you mentioned you could do this by, by dosing a patient just several times a year. What What is the lasting effect of, of a treatment? Well, the, the way that these work is that... Um, once molecules get into the cell, then they um, initially are in the endosome and then they're released into the cytoplasm where they interact with a, a mechanism called the uh, uh, called risk. And it's r risk where these molecules are processed so that um, the um, appropriate strand then um, is delivered into the cytoplasm to down-regulate the messenger RNA or degrade the messenger RNA and, and therefore interrupt the message. Now, I mean, there is still some discussion about how the duration of action is, is actually maintained. It's either because the process is catalytic, that means uh, it, it continues. Um, so, so one molecule can actually process a whole number of messenger RNAs or that there is potentially some depot within the cell. But what it ends up with is, as Mark said, that you know, you potentially you only have to administer uh, these molecules um, as little as twice a year. The technology is used to target cells in the liver. What's the range of conditions that you can treat by targeting the liver? So what is interesting is there are 14,000 genes expressed in the liver. You know, there are 30,000 uh in all in in man um so 30000 sorry 14000 genes expressed in the liver is certainly a very large range of genes in question and 
if you look at our sector today, those of us that are focused on RNA interference, there's probably less than 140 uh, programs uh, targeting different genes expressed in the liver today. So today there's probably less than 1% of expressed genes in the liver that are being addressed or trying to be addressed. So our general thesis is we're still at the infancy of this uh, technology, you know, specifically associated with with the liver um, expressed, you know, genes. So I, th- you know, we think that there are you know years ahead of finding targets that are disease causing uh, in the liver, and then looking to address those targets by specifically knocking them down using siRNA. I want to talk about your pipeline, but before we do, talk to me about your partnering strategy and how this fits into your business model. You've announced deals with AstraZeneca, Ballantrop, and Takeda, and this is a total potential of 14 programs in your pipeline with up to $6 billion in potential milestones plus royalties. How do you structure these deals and what is Silence's role in the preclinical or clinical development of these candidates? Yeah, no, great question. Well, firstly, the whole of this begins by recognizing it's taken us 20 years to develop what we think is a really exciting platform, the gold platform. And as I said, there's a lot of opportunity here. So the way that we want to maximize that opportunity is partly through partnership and partly through developing our own pipeline. And so the partnership side is really important. As you say, AstraZeneca, Malincrot, and also more recently, Hanso, just to update you, uh, are three partners with actually a total of 16 programs now and 7.5 billion in milestones and royalties. And the way these generally are set up is that the partner will contribute either partly or fully to the uh, cost of the experiments uh, that are being conducted preclinically. They will generally pay an upfront at the start of the partnership and they'll pay milestones as we go through the various preclinical and then clinical development and finally commercialization phases. But they they will have an option, uh, typically at the end of phase one, you know, whether to, you know, take that in-house and then go all the way themselves. But essentially through to phase one, we te- we're generally conducting the work necessary. And do these agreements cover your cost? Are they structured to be profitable from the start? Yeah, they generally more than cover the cost. Once you look at the fact there's an upfront payment and then there are milestone payments along the way and contributing payments for costs associated with the experiments that have been conducted, they generally, you know, more than wash their face. And then I think the big opportunity comes as you go further down the development pathway and you head towards regulatory approvals and commercialization. And then ultimately... You know, we have royalty streams that come from the sales from these programs. How do you balance the demands and resources for these partnered programs versus your own pipeline? Well, I think we're quite strategic about the way we choose to partner. So, for example, with AstraZeneca, 
not only do we have a great company as a partner uh, that I think we have a very good working relationship with, and we we knew that sort of by you know from the time that we evaluated this as an option, but they also bring additional know-how and capabilities into the company because they're actually interested not only in leveraging our goal platform with liver-directed targets, but they're also interested in looking at siRNA being delivered to other organ systems for diseases outside of the liver. So if you like, the additional know-how and capabilities are, are very important. And then if I take... Hanso, as a more recent partnership there, a Chinese company, uh, a leading, actually innovative Chinese company, we did a deal with them because the structure of that deal gave us access to the world's second largest, you know, pharmaceutical marketplace. But also the way this was structured is that two of the three uh, targets are essentially going to be owned by silence but they will keep China rights. And then one of the targets they will have global rights for. So it really balanced our, our approach between partnering and going it alone. And with regards to the pipeline of products you're developing on your own, do you ultimately expect to partner those or are you seeking to commercialize those on your own? It'll be a mix. And I think... I mean, perhaps Giles will want to comment on SLN 360 in a minute, which is, you know, one of our two really lead programs where we've just had very exciting clinical data. Uh, That one, we're more likely to partner just because of the scale of this. We're talking about a cardiovascular indication uh, addressing up to 20% of the world's population, whereas SLN124 is for a range of hematological conditions where there's unmet need for patients and where we think the scaling of this is something that a company of our size could undertake all the way to to market. Let's talk about your your pipeline. You you mentioned SLN360, which is in development for high lipoprotein A. What is SLN360? How How does it work? Well, I mean, as Mark indicated, I think, um, you know, we've been really excited by some results that we just released, in fact, last week. Uh, and it really exemplifies that what sRNA can do in terms of um, uh, the power of the drug. I mean, we, we showed that giving this drug to patients with elevated LP little a um, reduced that risk factor by up to 98% with uh, a decrease um, up to 81% persisting 150 days. So you've got something that is really effective after a single dose and has a long duration of action and speaks very much to the sort of profile that Mark was saying in terms of being extremely patient-friendly. Now, the the target is a a lipoprotein, which has to some extent been hidden beneath... um, uh, cholesterol because it it um, shares some of the, the sort of um, the constituents of cholesterol. So it's only recently that it's come into its own right as being recognised as a major risk factor. And in fact, we now know that up to 20% of the world's population have ever elevated levels of this risk factor. And if you have um, a, a double the normal level, then that increases your risk of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack 
by um, two, two to three times. So it's, it's significant. The other aspect about it is that it's genetic. So unlike cholesterol, it's not something that you can manage by lifestyle or by diet. This is something you ha you're born with. And at the moment, there's no um, pharmac effective pharmacotherapy. So there's a huge unmet need there. Uh, and in fact, given the prevalence, it, it is a major um, health policy issue, which we're hoping to be able to address with three, SLN360. Novartis's Lecvio uh, was approved at the end of 2021. What does that mean for the development of SLN360? Are you going after the same patients? Well, it's a different target. So um, they were going after a target called PCSK9, which is really um, another way to approach um, LDL cholesterol. Um, LP little a is a completely different target. And, you know, I, th I think in terms of understanding cardiovascular risk, it's one of the reasons why heart disease is still a major problem, despite having effective therapies to try and reduce cholesterol. It's because of other risk factors, including alcohol. So in, uh, very important to be able to address this. So would you be going after the same types of patients or is it a different subset of patients? Well, as I said, um, there will be some overlap because, uh, you know, if 20% of the population has um, elevated LP little a, some of those individuals are also going to have elevated um, cholesterol. So it will be a, a mixed population. And, and if you're go especially if you're going after patients with established cardiovascular disease, many of them will be on drugs designed to reduce cholesterol, such as statins. You're also in the clinic with SLN124, which is in development for beta thalassemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, and polycythemia vera. What is SLN124? Well, this is another sRNA. This is for a rare disease this time. Um, it's dealing with individuals that have um, so-called iron-loading anemias, um, specifically beta thalassemia and MDS, and that's where we are in patients right now. But as you indicated, it, it, because we're dealing with a central mechanism, um, it has a, a number of, of different applications. Um, it, what it does is it controls levels, levels of hepcidin, and hepcidin has been uh, uh, recognized as being the master regulator of, of iron uh, flux in the body, and has been compared to insulin, the way that insulin controls uh, glucose, so uh, hepcidin controls iron levels, and iron levels play a, a fundamental part in terms of um, the severity of the anemia in these conditions. And, and what's known about that from studies that have been done to date? Well, a bit like, um, and this is what's so nice about this um, modality, is that what we've seen is good reproducibility between the work we've done in animal models or preclinical species and what we've seen in humans. So um, what we've shown preclinically is that if you administer SLM124, um, you get an increase in, in hepcidin and a reduction in serum iron, and then ultimately in these animals, a, um, a robust in, improvement in hemoglobin, which is what you're trying to do. These people are suffering from, from anemia and require um, uh, often frequent transfusions. Um, so that's what we saw preclinically. And then we reported a study in healthy volunteers last year, which showed um, after a single dose, the same sort of profile that we've seen with 124, a really nice um, effect in terms of increasing hepcidin 
a and a long duration of action and um, no clinical clinically relevant safety issues. And, and what's the development path forward for either of these? I think for SLN360, which is a, um, as I said, large cardiovascular indication, the next stage is a phase two study, which would be around 250 to 300 uh subjects, uh, subjects with stable cardiovascular disease and elevated lipoprotein A. So that's uh, something that we're, you know, talking to the regulators about initiating in the second half of this year. And then maybe I'll leave Giles to speak about the SLN124 program, which again is a series of rare hematological conditions that we're looking to to address. Yeah, I think I mean, what's exciting about this is that if you're dealing with a central mechanism, then generally there are a number of applications, and we see that in anemias. So by being able to regulate iron levels at the level of uh, red cell formation in the bone marrow, um, if iron, as I said, in, in, in these two diseases, beta thalassemia and myelodysplastic syndrome, iron levels are too high. So you want to reduce iron levels to improve the red cell formation. Um, in other diseases such as polycythemia rubavira, this is a essentially a red cell cancer where there's uncontrolled proliferation of red cells. And of course, it's one of the major um, resources that the bone marrow needs to make red cells. Um, iron is something if you can control by controlling hepcidin, then you can reduce the proliferation, you can re reduce the hematocrit and ultimately reduce some of the issues that these patients have, such as a fourfold risk of um, a thrombotic, um, thromboembolic disease. So, um, and, and then there are other areas that we're looking at, sickle cell disease, um, stem cell transplant, all of these are areas where iron regulation plays a critical role in, in, in the disease process and something we think we can control by investing um, on one, two, four. Mark, through your career, you've held executive positions at a, a number of companies focused on genetic diseases. Most recently, you were CEO at Orchard Therapeutics. Before that, you were at PTC Therapeutics, among others. What have you learned about developing and commercializing these therapies that is coloring your approach at Silence? Well, um Thank you for that question. I mean, I've been 20 years now working in the, the field of rare diseases, um, including actually working in cystic fibrosis in the late 90s, and then Shire Human Genetic Therapies for about seven years as well. And I think, I mean, I know it's been said many, many times, but we are a lot closer to patient communities in what we do. Um, in developing a medicine for a rare disease. And I, and I think that throughout our organization, throughout, you know, Giles's R&D organization and other parts of our organization, there is a genuine spirit of that engagement to understand what the issues are, to think about a patient perspective when it comes to, you know, trials, to think about information around what we're doing, thinking about partnership on trial recruitment, you know, and ultimately, of course, and I've been all the way through the spectrum from development through to bringing a medicine to market uh, for rare diseases on, on multiple occasions. I think that the patient voice later on in the journey as well in expressing 
you know, the disease burden in understanding the the impact of treatment and then helping with market access considerations is also extremely important, as well as the regulatory process, because by definition, when these are rare conditions, as you know, the amount of awareness around the condition and what is meaningful to adjust is is never as good as you you know you want. So that that connection with the patient community is extremely important to us. And I think if you go on to if your listeners go on to our website, you'll get an indication of that. I mean, we've been working quite closely with the patient communities and launched various initiatives to try and uh, increase awareness of of these diseases and to um, help the community. There's something that we currently are running called Color, Color the City Rare, which people might, might like to go on and, and have a look at as a sort of a, a game to test their knowledge of, of, of rare disease. And then Letter to My Younger Self, which is a way that we've um, been asking patients who are in the adult phase, particularly with beta thalassemia, to write to themselves as younger patients and just give themselves some hope that although they are um, feeling difficulties with their disease, there are ways through it and actually people can achieve a lot despite having a, a rare genetic condition. Mark Rothera, President and CEO of Silence Therapeutics, and Giles Campion, Head of R&D and Chief Medical Officer for Silence. Giles, Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, thank you very much also. Much appreciated. Been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.